What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is number, what are we on here, G? I think seven. Seven. Wow. Seven, man. It's pretty impressive. Lucky number. Lucky number seven. Um, What's been going on with you? Man, I can't complain. We went to the Philly soccer match over the weekend. We got a nice little win back in the city. It's fall time. No complaints. 35 Ventures, led by Mr. Kevin Durant, we were able to purchase a certain piece of the Philadelphia Union MLS soccer team. So G and I took the trek to Chester, Pennsylvania on Saturday night to a fanless stadium in Chester and got to watch the Philly Union win in extra time. It was pretty exciting, man. It was great. It was my first soccer match in real life for me. Yeah, that wasn't my first. I went to a game in Europe once, but I didn't pay any attention. This was the first time I went with an objective. I was focused. And remember, we brought a friend of mine and his son to the match. And one thing I did throughout that match, which I know you know, which I've done a lot in my life and more recently have really talked about it a lot as it relates to business, is ask a ton of questions. I asked a million questions, things that any soccer fan should know, 101, and I didn't know. But by the end of the match, I knew. And I feel like the next time I go to the game, I'll be way more equipped with information. I'll be able to talk about soccer just a tad bit more eloquently, and I'll keep asking questions. And I think that's the way to to get good at anything. That's all life's about, man, growth. Growth, growth, growth. I love when you hit me with those one-liners, bro. Give me a little confidence in what I'm saying. (laughs) So today we have a guest on. His name is Bill Duffy. He is a... NBA agent, sports agent, super agent, but he's just such a prolific force in our sport. And, you know, when you come into the game, people try to make other agents out to be these like animals and this dog eat dog world. And in some ways, you know, it is, it's a shrewd business. But from the time I met Bill, he was so kind to me, so welcoming, so encouraging of what Kevin and I were working on. And He's always been supportive. He's always showed up for me. And, you know, that's a common thread. I think you kept hearing me say, showed up, showed up. But that's big, man, because I think in in life, the people that are important to you, you got to show up for them, you know? So it's nice to know that the people that I've considered friends of mine that I've tried to be supportive of throughout my life, the fact that when um, you and I reach out now to try to help us with this with this pod and to help build our business, that people come and show love. So Bill's always been that way. So without further ado, Gianni, I want you to meet my good friend and super agent, Bill Duffy. Bill, thank you so much, man, for joining the Out of Office podcast. It's my pleasure, Rich. It's great to connect with you. So I want to ask you a question that I've asked in different iterations with some of our other guests. Um, But as it relates to your upbringing, when do you remember falling in love with the game of basketball and at the same time, was your inspiration as a kid to be an NBA basketball player and nothing else? Or did you already start to kind of look at things in life that you wanted to do outside of basketball and ways in which you could become somebody? Wow. Believe it or not, no one's ever ever asked me that. But uh, <clears throat> I grew up in Pomona, California, and I had a guy who lived two doors from me. His name was Greg Ballard who ended up playing in the NBA and was a fourth pick in the draft. And he was my idol. He was four or five years ahead of me. And so, I mean, I just worshiped the ground this guy walked on and he was a great dude. He was 
smart. He was a great student. So he really inspired me because we grew up in kind of a tough area, but you know, he was going to do things. So he really inspired me. And then man on the streets, like him and some other guys, when I was like in the sixth grade, they used to let me play. Like we'd be playing in driveways and like you couldn't get in the games, but for whatever reason, they let me get in there and they were teaching me how to play and shoot jumpers and step backs and stuff. And I just fell in love with it. And then, you know, by virtue of that, um, you know, you grow up in LA, if you like basketball, then you're following UCLA and John Wooden. So I, I mean, I literally didn't miss a game for 10 years, like every single game. And so it was like a religion and you watch whether it's Lou Alcindor and Sidney Wicks and Bill Walton, I mean, on and on. And then crazily enough, I was John Wooden's number one recruit. I was Southern California high school player of the year in 1977, but my sophomore year, you know, they recruited me and um, it was insane. I mean, that was like unbelievable. Uh, and back then all the top players in LA always went to UCLA. And so I, um, you know, I learned about the game from watching UCLA basketball and hearing Dick Enberg and, you know, just the, the science of the game, the, the teamwork, the spacing, you know, the full court press, like it was an education for the game of basketball. And then simultaneously the Lakers with Will Chamberlain and Jerry West. I mean, we had that too. And Chick Hearn. So, I mean, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. So I was the kind of guy, I'm telling you, I would play basketball before school during the 10 o'clock lunch, uh, little break during lunch, then have basketball practice. And then I'd assemble all the top players in our area. We'd break into the gym at Pomona Colleges where Pop, Greg Popovich coached later. And we used to break into the gym. We'd have like 10 of the top players in there. We'd just play like till midnight. Like, and when I was a kid, whenever my parents, we'd go to visit someone, I'd have the ball in the, in the back of the car. I'd see a gym or, a, or not a gym, but a court, like a school, two or three blocks from where we were. And I was going back there. I just was consumed with it. So that was my whole deal. And then, you know, I went to University of Minnesota because John Wooden retired and they hired Gene Bartow, and right the day he landed in L.A., he picked up Larry Farmer, who was his assistant, and they came to my house. And as much respect as I had for, you know, Coach Bartow, because I watched him coach Larry Finch and Larry Keenan against UCLA when Bill Walton had, you know, 20, he was 21 for 22 in that NC2A championship game. But I just was so fixated with John Wooden that I just, I, I just didn't want to go there because it wasn't Wooden. So coach at University of Minnesota, a guy named Terry Kunze, he saw me at Superstars Camp. He called my house every morning at eight o'clock for a year. And it got to the point where he's talking to my little sister, he's talking to my mom. So he convinced me to come out there for a recruiting visit. And so check out who my hosts are. Kevin McHale, Michael Thompson, Flip Saunders, Tony Dungy. So I fell in love with those guys. And I, I know getting out, out of LA was, you know, I was okay with that. And so that, that kind of started it. But I mean, this has been my whole gig just, so yeah, I was expecting to be an NBA player. I ended up getting drafted. That didn't work out. Um, but I, I ran it to the tilt, man. So it's amazing that I'm able to do what I do still in the game of basketball. It's been really, really unbelievable. So when you're at Minnesota with that group of people and Tony Dungy was affiliated with the basketball program there? Tony was on the team. So Tony, he was a senior when I was a freshman and he, he was our quarterback. Um, he, he and um, uh, Mark Tressman. They, they were both our quarterbacks. But Tony, that, that year he didn't play, but the previous year he did. So he was there on my recruiting trip. And I fell in love with that guy. I just respected him <clears throat> and stuff like that. And uh, just being around leaders like that. You see Flip end up being, you know, president, general manager, God rest his soul. 
Kevin McHale ended up being my roommate. You know, he's my boy. Michael Thompson was player of the year, first pick in the draft. Um, and then, you know, Ray Williams had just left from New York, from Mount Vernon. He was one of my, he was also one of my hosts when I visited there. And then also the year before I got there, Mark Overding was there, Mark Landsberger. I mean, these were all NBA guys. So it was amazing just to be in that environment. Ray Williams was different, man. I remember watching him as a kid. He was different. Um, so when you're around all these guys, is that kind of that first bit of inspiration about what potential sports could bring you maybe even outside of playing? And I guess with that, were you kind of aware of what your limitations were going to be professionally or was that a hard thing to kind of grasp? Wow, that's a good question. So, I mean, it was a little different back then. There was only like 15 teams and 12 guys. So, um, I mean, it wasn't, it was hard, right? It was a lot less guys. <clears throat> um, I got hurt. You know, I broke my wrist my senior year. I was averaging like 20 and we were cooking. And then I broke my wrist. I missed like eight games and I didn't really recover. So, I, you know, I, the reason I got drafted, I've heard this later um, by North Carolina, by um, Denver is because I had a good game against Michael Jordan and James Worthy and Perkins the, the year they won the national championship. And so Doug Moe um, was the coach. He was a Carolina guy and Carl Shear, and apparently Dean Smith recommended me to them from that game. So that's what I heard later. I was like, wow, that, that's pretty amazing. Because, you know, back then, you'd, you know, you had regional scouts. We didn't have ESPN. So you didn't have all this fanfare and stuff. So, but, you know, I played against Magic uh, at this high school All-American tournament in Oakland the first time I was exposed to him. And I, I was averaging like 30. I was playing really well. So I was kind of on that path. And then when I went to Minnesota, we got put on probation. We had some issues. And I transferred to Santa Clara because I wanted to go to school where I knew I was going to be like the best dude. And Kurt Rambis was there. So Kurt and I played. Uh, he His senior year was my redshirt year. So, you know, just to just to be in that environment. But, you know, I I, I put all, all my energy into it. But I also, I mentioned Greg Ballard, like, you know, being a student and educating yourself. Like, I didn't want to just be defined as a ball player. Like, I was I was the guy who didn't want to have, like, just being, being a jock, hanging around with other players. So when I go to school, I'd have friends from different backgrounds just to get more exposure. And that kind of prepared me. But I always thought, you know, I, I'd love to stay in the game if I couldn't play. And obviously, that was that was how things transpired for him. So, when your playing career ended um, in the '80s, I mean, there was no there was no model, right, of how to become an agent at that point. I mean, how old were you when it ended? Twenty three. Twenty three. So I'm 25, uh, Bill, and I wanted to ask you. So, you know, as a young black man just emerging from the league, you you know, I, you had aspirations to become an agent. How difficult was that path for you so look when i was uh i was a very good recruiter when i was in college like when i was a freshman at minnesota we had the number one recruiting class in the country and i recruited all four of those guys and then when i when i went to santa clara like the week i got there i recruited two of their top players like i just was a recruiter like taking guys out and talking so i knew i could kind of talk a little bit um and then interestingly when when Michael Thompson was earmarked to be the first pick in the draft and all these agents were recruiting him like Erwin Wiener and Bob Wolf and all these guys. And he didn't know who they were. And I knew everything. Like I knew who their clients were, what was going on. So I remember talking to him like, Hey man, that that's Dr. J's agent, or this is, you know, so-and-so's agent, blah, blah, blah. And the same thing with Kevin McHale, 
Like, you know, he's, he's up there from Hibbing, Minnesota. He didn't pay attention to this stuff. So I just had the ability to even advise my older teammates on information like that. So I've always been that type of a guy. And then some of the younger guys that I recruited, I just looked after them, like making sure they're going to class and taking care of their responsibilities and stuff like that. So I've always been a leader like that. Um, and so, you know, not knowing to, to Rich's question, like, you know, there was a few really established guys, but not, there was no black agents that I knew of, of any high note. Like there was a guy named Reggie Morris um, who had, I think James Edwards. And then there was um, actually um, Fred Slaughter had a bunch of the guys from LA and, um, and that was about it. So, but I, I read a couple books. I read Bob Wolf's book about his career. And then the, the, the most interesting read was what they don't teach you at Harvard business school by Mark McCormick. That was the creator of IMG. So just the business foundation. So I, I read that out of curiosity, not knowing that I would ultimately become an agent, but, yeah, this is kind of like an avocation, man, because this is what I've known, what I do. And it's like if you're a kid and you just – you just like I could tell you everybody's batting average, everybody's scoring average. You name a player, I could tell you his mom's name, where he grew up, his high school, how much he averaged. So I had this encyclopedic knowledge out of, you know, my quest to just understand it. So I was kind of well-equipped, and then it had you had to get the technical knowledge with, like, the collective bargaining agreement and – you know, how, how to, you know, inter interact with the media and things of that nature. That kind of came over time. So I read somewhere that Ronnie Lott played uh, a pretty integral part of your career as an agent. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's my guy, man. That, so Ronnie and I, when we were in the 10th grade, we made this um, all-star basketball team. He was, he was like number one baseball player in our area. He was number one football player. And then he was like a very, very good basketball player. So he and I made this all-star team. It was called the Inland Empire team from Pomona out to Palm Springs because they had all these regional teams in the LA area. And, you know, we were only sophomores. He was 16. I was 15. I didn't have a car. So, man, this guy used to pick me up. He'd drive from Rialto, California to Pomona, which is 30 minutes. Then we'd drive an hour and a half to Redlands. And then he'd drive me back, I mean, just for every practice. And then he picked me up on the weekends. We'd go work out together. And we just became like really good friends. So I go to University of Minnesota. He goes to USC. And fortunately, when I transferred to Santa Clara, that was his rookie year with the 49ers. So even though I was at school, you know, he, he had a condo about 10 minutes from campus. So I just kind of lived with him. And that is just my guy, man. And so um, you know, his, age, his agent was a guy named Leonard Armato. And I ended up recruiting for Leonard couple of 49ers that Ronnie was teammates with. So that was kind of my first foray in the business. Um, but Ronnie is like a lifelong friend. Uh, that guy, he's the best friend you could ever have. And we're still extremely close. We communicate weekly. We have some other business interests together, some private equity investments. So that's a lifelong friend. It's, I, I got to meet him and um, work a little bit with him just on some people that he introduced me to during um, Kevin's time in the Bay. And he has this kind of effect, I think, on people where he's this polarizing, like generational talent athlete. But that same kind of demeanor happens off the field. And when you see him in a suit and when Kevin and I first met him and I was such a giant fan growing up, so I kind of feared him a bit, <laughs> but he just has this incredible presence, man. It's really he's a special dude.
when I wanted to be an agent um, growing up, I really I wanted to be in sports. I didn't know exactly what I wanted, and I similarly um, liked to fancy myself somewhat of an encyclopedia and tried to learn the game. And then as I got a bit older, um, I think like what I viewed the sports agents as are like these kind of cutthroat deal makers. And I remember seeing Jerry Maguire and you saw in, in movies, nobody got along with each other. They all tried to screw each other over. But I didn't think it could really be real. And I remember when I became an agent and I was very kind of late in starting that quest. I was probably 34, 35, though I loved every bit about the business. It was my, my first time really being around the NBA and I was at the combine and I went to one of those like um, mandatory agent seminars. I don't even know if they do them anymore. Yeah, they do. And I, rem I remember thinking to myself that everyone was like in their own corner and nobody <laughs> was talking to each other. And I thought how ridiculous that just felt coming from the music business. If Lior Cohen signed somebody, you know, it's like Jimmy Iovine, for instance, or Clive Davis didn't resent him. They were kind of just all the, their peers. Yeah. In the agency business, it feels like you have to be, or at least at the time, it was very cutthroat, um, or it felt that way. What do you think um, entails, or what makes up a great agent in the world of sports? These are great questions. So, um, you know, it's, cr it's crazy because when I played, I was always the guy talking to the guys on the other team. Like I'd be like, I would try to kick their tail, but I would, after the game, like, you know, be friendly and respectful and civil. And that's how I built a lot of friendships. Right. Even though we competed, but man, this agent thing is different. Like it's so territorial and guys are hyper, you know, protective of their client. Now I did football earlier in my career in football. There was a lot of like a working relationship with all the agents and, trying to get information to help each other, right? And the union was supporting of that. And basketball, man, there's some top agents, I won't even name them, that have been out there for 20 years. And like when I see them, it's barely even high. Like it's insane. Now, I, I personally am trying to be friendly with everyone. So I think I have a pretty good relationship because I extend myself to everybody. Or I'll congratulate a guy, hey, you did a good deal. And they're kind of shocked that you say that. But I try to humanize it but because we're all in the same thing together in, in a sense. But it's really like amazing how toxic it is because this is a crazy you know this is a crazy business everyone's trying to steal everybody's client and you know bad mouthing everybody so it, to get over that then when you when you find out somebody says something negative about you then you want to kill the guy let alone shake his hand and there's so much of that so you know i i've tried to be above all that but it is a bit challenging i mean i think it's funny because i remember when i first met you you have you're you know you're a uh, you're a legend in the game, and I, I really knew your name from the sports world. You know, in um, in like eighties and nineties um, and two thousands when you would early two thousands when you would read about sports, you really genuinely genuinely generally read it in the morning newspaper. And when you'd hear about a contract, you'd always have the agent quoted, so your name became very synonymous. And then people kind of talked about you in that you had been in this and were like a threat, right? You were this a threat because you were so successful. And then I met you and I was like, probably the nicest agent I've met so far, you know, <laughs> welcome to me, congratulated me on being able to work with Kevin. You were so encouraging of the process. And, you know, we've gotten along since then. Um, that's not what most people think. I got this very weird um, and unconventional route into the business. You know, I was 
um, around very successful people in Jay-Z and the whole group at Rock Nation. I was building a successful music career, but I loved sports. And then right when I started really having an itch to go after my passion, Jay-Z was creating an agency and I got this opportunity at 35. Um, and I took it and ran with it. But that is a one in whatever, right? There's one Jay-Z. So there's one opportunity like that. What would you tell a young aspiring agent today because there's so many other ways in you know i i don't think you have to go get a law degree you don't have to even graduate college in some cases but what would your directive be to a young aspiring sports agent well you you gotta respect that this is a, a challenging business i think you would say that i mean this is tough you know getting the contracts Taking care of the players is not easy, and it's very intensive, and it's very time-consuming. takes a lot of energy. Um, but the easiest way is if you have a relationship with somebody, somebody of influence that can position you, because um, you know you don't have like you don't get hired unless you have something. Like either you you better know somebody really well, and your first job if you're not making money for the firm, you're not making any money. So you better bring some heat. So you better have a high profile player that you have, and then you can justify, you know, somebody paying you. So I have a hundred people reach out to me all the time and I'm like, man, I, I got a lot of qualified people, but I, you got to bring clients like, cause you know, you got to generate, you know, basically pay for yourself. So, um, it's, it's really like, you, you can't, a lot of people think they can do this cause they're around the game. They watch the game, but the nuances, man, of these contracts, negotiations, trades, and, this stuff is tough. So you got to really have the, the educational qualifications in my mind, or you better have smart people around you. But and a lot of it is relationship managing too, like the, the player's ability to relate to you and respect you. So it, it takes a lot. Um, you know, this is like my 35th year. So I've seen everything that you could possibly imagine. And the fact that I'm still here getting, you know, top players, I, I, I think it's because I've tried to do things the right way. Appreciate you saying, you know, being cordial, but and I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm very, very competitive, but I'm also not, you know, like trying to hurt anybody or badmouth anybody. Like a lot of times when I recruit, people will say, you're the only agent who didn't say anything about anybody else. And I said, well, I can't speak to them. I can only speak to what I can do for you. And that's all that, you know, we should be focusing on. But a lot of people think they lift themselves up by putting people down. I've never subscribed to that. But, you know, and then also, you know, like I said, there's only a few black agents back in the day. And I, I see a lot more. African-Americans getting opportunities. I know last year's football draft seems like half of the first round picks were represented by African-Americans. I was so excited to see that and some women, uh, African-American women. So I see a lot of growth opportunities, but you just, you got to really have your stuff together. Well, I mean, I think along with the, uh, the promise and the diversity of the representation that we have across like the major sports leagues. Now you also see, kind of, like I said, kind of a bit of a diverse background now from all the different kind of sports agents in that, you know, my background um, allowed me to enter the business now today. And there's been other people that have taken that route different from then when you had to go on that journey. Um, the business has changed because of that. And um, because of the business changing, there are roles for people that can work on building a brand or investing in technology or starting a media company um, how do you like the changes that have happened in the league and kind of when do you think you realize that you maybe had to change a certain way or philosophy in which you represented players because of the changing of the times? 
Yeah, my deal is just really understanding what's contemporary. And obviously, social media is such a huge element to a player's branding and their profile. I mean, you've done a great job when you were here with Kevin in the Bay Area, like monetizing on relationships and building them. So you were intuitive to, to recognize that. But players want to build a profile. They want to build a media profile. Um, and they also want to prepare for their future. So I'm very mindful of that. I think that way anyway. So it's just really, you know, exploring the different tools and the connections for the players um, because that's what they're looking for. So, and even if they're not looking for it, an agent should have responsibility to help, you know, make provisions for their future and stuff. But I think the biggest thing is just like, if you go back 20 years, I'd have, you know, clients that I only talk to them you know, once every two weeks, because there just was less intensity around them, less people around. And now it's like, you know, there's like three or four conversations a week with them or their people or their families, like it's intense. So you have to have the, the bandwidth to, to, to communicate with everybody because, you know, these kids are texting and, you know, DMing all the time. So, you know, I, 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 I'm very engaged, but I have a huge staff of 30 that help communicate with the players and make sure that they're, um, you know, doing things, you know, in order and being organized, you know, and another thing that, that hit over the years, you know, has been, so you hear so many horror stories about players being ripped off and, you know, the money managers and the aggressiveness in that play. And one thing I'm really proud of is to my knowledge, we, I haven't had one client in my entire career who's filed for bankruptcy, which, and we don't manage the money, but it shows that we care that we're engaged and we're in tune with how they're living and what they're doing and who they're associating with. And, and I'm at the point where I have so much, I feel great when an older client gets married, calls me and says, man, my family's in order. I got all my money, you know, cause I'll, I'll jump in there if I see some monkey business. Cause I know everybody and I know if there's a bad influence or a bad person approaching them, like we just cut all that off. So you're, you're kind of a gatekeeper. So, I'm, I'm really happy that we're able to provide that service because that's our responsibility at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because sometimes I'll have like friends of mine that are so far removed from my world hear me on the phone with Kevin and I'll be like, um, <laughs> all right, well, you know, what restaurant was that that you guys all wanted to go to tonight? And they'll say, you still making restaurant reservations? And I said, I'm going to do that forever. Right. You know, like no matter how big our business gets or our company continues to grow into different verticals, my job as his manager and my job as the kind of front line for his family is f in perpetuity because that's how we got here. Do you still, with the size of your roster, are you available for your guys 24-7? Do you still claim to be available for them 24-7? I am because people who know me know that I'm the easiest guy in the world to reach. I pick up every call. You know, in my life, I have five kids. My youngest one is, is a freshman in college, so my wife, God bless her, like she's done a great job raising the kids. So we don't have any challenges, so to speak. So they're, they're creating their own independence. So I'm less on top of their day-to-day -day stuff as I was for the last 20 years or so, 25 years. But um, yeah, I'm very accessible. I, I just, I'm on my phone all the time. And even wherever I am, I'm always checking my phone. So nobody will tell you that they can't reach me, especially a client. Um, and a lot of times they're the ones I say, look, I got to reach you. You got to make sure you're accessible because it works both ways, right? But accessibility is not an issue. I, I know I watch, you know, get information on every game. If somebody's hurt, what's going on? And then I've got, like I said, a good layer of support with our client relations team and then the various agents in the firm. So we're on top of all that. 
very detailed. So like with the business changing, um, and I know this from uh, the, the few years that I was still repping other guys at the same time I was repping Kevin, is what people like LeBron and Michael and Steph and Kevin and Kobe were able to introduce to these younger players is that the sky's the limit, that if you're a star in the court, you can be a mega global star off of it. But that is a process. That's hard work like we know from watching our um, our clients that that's work like no one else could imagine. What kind of conversations do you have to have with young players when they come to you with these aspirations to do all of this? Um, and how hard is it to be honest and to kind of push patience and to focus on basketball first and foremost? Yeah. Well, everybody wants everything immediately, and they have to understand that you know the five or six players you mentioned are like some of the best players in the history of the game. So, you know, they're going to get opportunities. People are interested in them and they're, you know, producers on the court. So you try to educate them. Like, you know, you can get to a point like Steve Nash, for instance, when Steve started, you know, I thought there was a nice buzz around him. I he was familiar with his game, his personality. And when he became a good player, there was some stuff off the court. And he didn't want to do anything until he felt like he really validated himself. So he waited until he established himself. And then the way he, the way he comported himself, all those opportunities were there for him because he's a great guy. He's a winner, good personality and humanitarian and stuff. So it was kind of a patient process. And he wasn't like saying, hey, I need more endorsements or he just wanted to play basketball. So the guys that love the game usually become the greatest players. And then you just tell them, look, you reach a certain point, you know, based on your social media following. I mean, people are going to come after you. So you just kind of create the cadence so that they understand you got to earn this, right? Like. You can be a great player, but if you don't win, then sponsors, they want to be associated with winning, right? So it all has to come together. So when you get that, unless there's a, an outlier like Yao Ming came in and it was such a phenomena and an outlier that there was opportunities immediately by virtue of the bridge between China and the U.S. So we totally took advantage of that from the beginning. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Bill. Like what, so I think, I believe at the time the league wasn't as international as it currently is. And so... You know, how old was Yao when you started hearing buzz about this seven-foot superstar in China and made you want to make that leap and get him over to the league? Yeah, so when my dad, my dad was in the military, so I lived in China, Taiwan when I was, you know, first grade, kindergarten. So my, my younger sister's half Taiwanese, half black, and she was, we adopted her when we were there. My two older siblings are half Korean. Um from the military that was before I was born. So the Chinese culture was one I was very familiar with having started school there. So I heard about Yao Ming from some folks and he was 17. So I just went over there and I, I met him, you know, worked him out. I was very impressed with his skill set. We went out to dinner and just really a nice person and we just clicked right away. And so I knew I was going to, you know, hopefully work with him, but I knew I was going to do whatever was required to get him over here. And it took five years and all kinds of, you know, I went over there 20 times and trips, getting governmental officials involved and, you know, secretary of, you know, labor who had a relationship with the Chinese government. I mean, it just was on and on and on. But I just recognized that he would be something totally unique because of his name, his look, his skill, and that he'd be popular. Plus, he has a sense of humor. Like, he would really resonate here. And it was, it was great because it all came to fruition. Like, I remember going over there before the NBA was even there, really. 
and, you know, going to the games and then going back five years, 10 years later, and you see all the NBA people there. It's like, it was, it was there like finding gold before, you know, the settlers come in and stuff like that. So I just kind of recognized that he'd be great. And just, it was a great story. And I mean, still, I still work with him. We, we talk regularly. I still advise him on stuff that he needs help with. And, you know, it's just been a really a magnificent journey. How much responsibility did you feel during the struggles last year between government and China and the NBA um, and obviously Yao's place within both institutions? Um, did you feel responsibility to get involved and did you get involved? I did behind the scenes trying to be a, a bridge builder. I mean, it's such a delicate, you know, tough thing with two different ideologies and whatnot. And, you know, those are things that are so institutional historically but you know when there's challenges like that you you try to rise above that and you sport as a bridge builder and that's what that what bothers me most is that you know we're you know you've got the chinese basketball association you got americans playing there you've got a you know shoe companies chinese shoe companies signing nba players like it's it's just great development because they love basketball so it was upsetting that there were some setbacks and i i hope we can recover um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of challenges and the political climate right now is very sensitive, but I'm hoping and praying over time that, you know, we can have, you know, get back to where we were and, and the game being the impetus for it. You mentioned, um, having a father that was in the military and you moved around a lot. You represented Yao Ming and you represent Luka Doncic now. Do you think, um, A, I'll ask you, do you think that your experience as um, as a young child moving around is what maybe has led you to kind of gravitate towards repping international players and getting that exposure. Yeah, like I said earlier, like when I was in college, when I was a, at uh, Santa Clara University, when I was a senior, my roommate was this Italian kid, Silvio Ursini. His dad was a heart surgeon from Naples, Italy, because I wanted to learn about. Him. Italy. I want to learn about his father's career. and I didn't want to just be with another basketball player and just talk about games and stuff. But I think just naturally when you grow up internationally like that and your dad's all over the place. He was in Vietnam twice. We were moving from Virginia to Philadelphia to China, you know, whatever. You, you kind of learn about different cultures. And so I'm comfortable internationally just with communicating with people. And I feel like, um, you know, when you you make people feel comfortable, you know, as an American, um, people respect Americans. I found that maybe it's lesser <laughs> right now, but I find that the way I've treated everybody, no matter who they are, whether they're in Africa or, or Europe or Russia, like I have good relationships over there. And I, you know, I've, I've got a lot of great friends that I stay in touch with globally. So representing athletes there, I also felt that, you know, when I first went to, you know, handle Serbia, you know, some what I was finding is some of the Serbian players didn't feel they were getting quality represented representatives when they were in the NBA because they were foreigners. And my thing was, shit, I'm a minority like it, but you work with me, you're going to be treated just like an American. And I've done that. You know, I've had a whole bunch of them and guys like Goran Dragic and Nikola Vucevic, like they get, they, they came, they've been here for 10 years, whether they went to school or Goran came up through the Suns organization, but they, they're treated the same way an American is in my firm. So, you know, that's been beautiful. And those guys obviously have helped with Luca because they, Luca sees how we've represented 
other gentlemen from his region of the world. So I think Ritz, you just treat people with respect and you, you know, you keep your word and you do things the right way above board. And it doesn't really matter where they're from or what color that, that resonates universally. Yep. 100%. Um, speaking of Luca, and I guess this is a little bit to our earlier conversation about having that honest combo with an athlete at a young age and explaining the patience that is needed to get to the top. Then you have someone like Luca who almost defies all logic. And (laughs) I'm sure after two years telling him to be patient or being patient yourself, you know, being able to know from experience that though he could do everything right now, that there's still a way to get there. How has that kind of process been as you are kind of embarking on what could be one of the most legendary careers on and off the court that we've ever seen, um, if it's done right. Yeah, well, he he's very, very, very focused on basketball. That's all he wants to concentrate on now, and I understand that. I support it. Um, he's he's an unbelievably competitive young man, and you know, throughout my career, because I you know I, I have a basketball background, and I've always been able to give guys pointers and information about the game or give them something that I see from my basketball eye. I don't think from the time he was 15 or 16, when we started working with him, I don't think I've ever had to say or thought to say one thing because he's like a genius. He just understands his instincts, his competitiveness, his energy, his, his, his love for the game, his passion. I mean, he's like no one I've ever seen before. Now I knew he'd be a triple double machine and I knew he'd do well here. Um, but the way the game is and the spacing and the way he just attacks, like it's just really amazing what he's doing. And it's, he just comes at your throat every second. So he's one who you don't necessarily, um, you know, have to teach as much. You know, it's, it's really just kind of monitoring, like, hey, man, slow down. <laughs> like, you know, take the day off. You know, you know, take it easy. If you're hurt, you know, you don't have to play 48 minutes because – he just wants to be out there. He's just so full of passion. So I think it's just him. You kind of just keep guiding him and supporting him and empowering and making him feel comfortable so he can continue to excel, you know? So the one deal um, that I think at any kind of level of entry into the league that every athlete looks to, whether it's as small as a merch deal or getting a deal like Zion probably got out of um, college or KD or LeBron, any of these guys, um, so for you guys, you chose Jordan for Luca. Um, do you want to talk to me a little bit about that? Only because I, I'm interested in both Luca and Zion. You can speak to Luca being with Jordan when, even though Mello, Russ, uh, CP, mega stars were with Jordan, never has a shoe under Jordan popped out on its own. And both those guys seem like players capable of having their own massive signature shoe line. What was you and Luca and team Luca's thought process in doing the deal with Jordan? Yeah, I think that's all Luca. Like Luca makes his decisions. Um, Luca is the driver of that. I think the reverence, you know, for Michael Jordan and their interest in him at that level, that was really his doing. Um, you know, he's smart. He's savvy with what product line he's interested in and, He's very selective with his time and who he interfaces with. Um, but I think that was just more his personal preference. Um, and like I said, you know, he's been a professional, you know, five or six years. So he's dealt with the commercial element. 
he played in Real Madrid, you know, where Cristiano Ronaldo is. So he's kind of been in that environment at a high level. So I think his personal preference on things is very much him. So you gotta, you gotta give him all the, the credit for what he chooses to do and, and how he does it. And that's definitely his call. And the development of um, Luca's business at Jordan, will BDA stay involved in that day to day? Is it part of the kind of setup that um, you guys have with your, with your athletes? Yeah, I think his, he has some international groups that work with him as well, because I think his main focus is more in Europe than here. So he has a group that he works with in Europe um, more so on that as far as his branding. And he's doing a lot of stuff in Slovenia. Uh, he and his mother have merchandising relationships there. So, you know, they're very passionate about Slovenia. Like the, the stuff they're doing there is unbelievable. They have plans for a lot of charitable things there. So um, they have a, a very specific plan on what they want to do. And most of it is European centric. Bill, over under, no, that's not the right way to ask this. Odds that Gianni knows where Slovenia is and the odds that I know where it is. <laughs> I'm going with him. Gianni, where's Slovenia? East Europe and it borders Croatia, I want to say. Yeah. Way more worldly than me, bro. There's another city. There's another popular city that it borders. Oh, not Azerbaijan. No, no, no. Serbia, Serbia, Italy. Italy. Well, Serbia too, but Italy, yeah. That was easy. Nice. Yeah. Um, all right, another international player and a, a friend of both of ours who is now the new head coach of the Brooklyn Nets, Steve Nash. Um, when you first heard about it, did you think there was any chance that, that Steve would want this job? You know, over the years, like, you know, I've received countless calls and honestly, half the time, I mean, you're so close with KD, you know how he thinks. So a lot of times people would call me and I just, I don't even have to call Steve. Like, no, he's not even going to entertain that, right? So, uh, but this one was different. And I think when he got support from his family and I think KD had a lot to do with just his interest that KD was there in that relationship and Kyrie as well. So, I, and then Sean Marks was the, really the instigator of it. Um, Steve had reached out to Sean and Sean was excited. They were teammates um, at Phoenix. So Sean had a firsthand account of Steve's leadership, talent, um, understanding of the game, yada, yada, yada. So it, it was really like, it's a big challenge. And people are saying, well, you know, it's like a layup. It's, it's not a layup when you, you know, you give LeBron and those guys to, you know, Eric Spolster, like you're supposed to win. So when you win, you do a hell of a job. Phil Jackson goes to L.A., you know, he manages Kobe and he manages Shaq, and they win. Like, there's more pressure on that because they're going for the championship. So anything less than that is considered a medi mediocre or a failure. So I think people are saying, oh, he's got this great opportunity. There's pressure because he expects to win, they expect to win, and the owner expects to win, and that's that. they're all in. So I think just competitively, you know, he's, he's worked with guys. I, I think you know this, you know, guys, but – a lot of NBA players fly into LA. Steve takes him to the gym, like countless guys just during the summer on his own time, doesn't charge anybody. So he still stays connected to individuals. Then he's done the, the work with the Warriors, but to have the ability to have his own team and implement all of his education over these years, I think he's really, really excited about this. Do you think coaching superstars um, requires a different skill set than coaching 
I guess let's just say the rest of the NBA players that don't make up those select group of 10 players. Yeah, because to me, it's such a player-oriented game and the players dominate. If you, you just watch a game and, you you know, there's only a certain amount of coaches that really garner the respect of the players. And you have to earn it. You've got to let them play their game so they, they enjoy you and respect you. And you also have to maintain, like, the, the equilibrium of, of the team because you're together for 82 games and traveling and the ups and downs and the media and all the family stuff. So I, I think it takes unique personality. Either you're a great, great player who can communicate and also has the, the humility to know it's not about you. It's about making your players better. I think Steve fits that prototype. But, you know, if, if Phil Jackson or, you know, Pat Riley, like you respect those guys. So I think Steve, I'm not, I don't want to compare him to those guys because he hasn't coached a game yet. But, you know, his start's going to be, you know, to the point where everyone's going to respect him, listen to his knowledge. And that's why I think he's equipped to handle superstars. You know, he, he made Amari Stoudemire, like who people didn't know his talent, like a superstar, right? Like he managed him, made him better, you know, motivated him, turned him into a defender, hard worker because he fed him. Like he kept giving him the ball and run and I'll take care of you. Kind of like with Stockton and Malone, that dynamic. So I think Steve has the capability to do that. And he also is just, he's a listener and he's a humble guy. So I think he'll, he'll always protect the players and he'll always want to hear what they're saying, but he'll also be able to interject with credibility, like methodologies that, that will work for the team. So when, when players that you represented their whole career start to take jobs with NBA teams like Steve coaching the Nets and peers of yours like Bob Myers and Rob Palinka and Arn Tellum take jobs with organizations, um, do you get kind of the itch to, to ever run a team or run an NBA organization? No, I've, I've had several opportunities to do that. I, I'm not, it's not really my lifestyle. Um, I like my autonomy. Um, I like, you know, working with a multitude of people instead of just one organization. I also like, I do a lot of stuff business-wise, entrepreneurially, that that would take away from that. So I just, I, I want to have a little more um, relevance in my life, you know, more balance than just working for one team to win X amount of games. Like I, I'm, I'd prefer to do a lot more than that. It's flattering knowing that teams are interested, though, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. If I bought a team, I would ask you to run it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the person who who has the best gig is Jerry West. I'm not saying I'm Jerry West, but, you know, he's an advisor. He's an observer. He doesn't have to deal with the agents. He doesn't have to deal with the media. He's just able to make suggestions and recommendations, and he works his tail off. That would be ideal, but that would be much, much later yeah. if I were to consider doing something. For the record, if you buy a team, I want you to ask me to run it then too. We can do that. If you can get KD to play, then that's a good start. You better hurry up. We have like yeah. nine years to buy a team. <laughs> I hear um, what agents today motivate you, keep you kind of on your game? What agents? What peers of yours? So, wow. Um. You know, uh, Mark Bartlestein, uh, Jeff Swartz. I mean, we've, we're competitors for many, many years, but we've become pretty good friends. Uh, I think we have a collective um, interest in the well-being of the league, so we kind of cooperate with each other. 
I think the Mark Termini and Rich Paul crew, um, I've known Mark for 40 years. I have a lot of respect for him and I'm, I'm happy with, I've known Rich since he was, you know, 16, 17 years old running around. So it's amazing what he's been able to do. Um, you know, those are probably the main guys. Any players that you've ever had a chance or you were very close to signing that still keep you up at night or anyone that kind of got away that you regret? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who? Man. Um, I mean, I'm not saying there's a couple of them I think we probably would have gotten if we would have been awake. But I think we could have gotten involved with Giannis before anyone met him because of our international contacts. I had someone in Africa who knew his family, and then I have an office in Athens, and we slept on that. And then Dwayne Wade, I advised him, and Tom Crean was a coach at Marquette at the time. And I was supposed to come in for a meeting and one of my best friend's mother passed away and I had to go to her service. So I missed it. And then my father, we found out he had cancer. So I had a big family thing that weekend. So I couldn't make the meeting, but I probably going into it would have had a really good shot um, because it had been set up and I couldn't even attend the meetings that particular weekend. So I kind of advised him to go with Henry Thomas, um, which he did because I had respect for Henry. And um, not that I handed him to Henry, but I'm just saying that I think it meant a lot to him that I mentioned Henry as someone that he should work with. So those are probably the two biggest ones. The state of our world, obviously it goes without saying has been in flux and has been at a real crossroads um, outside of the pandemic, kind of what's been brought to the forefront of the conversation more than ever, the social injustice that's existed in our country forever. Predominant, predominantly most of the um, players in the NBA are African-American what role did you take during the last few months in talking to some of your younger players? And and also just like kind of what role did you feel like was your responsibility as someone who's been so successful, an African-American who has led men and spoken up and helped so many? Um, what's the last few months been like for you from that perspective? Well, you know, being a black man, just personally, you know, kind of observing, it's, it's really disheartening. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Martin Luther King was assassinated and what that meant. And, you know, like in 68 with that, and then the, you know, the riots and then the Vietnam demonstrations. So I've seen our country under, under massive, you know, unrest, but I also knew that it was like temporary in the sense that, you know, the, the civil rights bill just passed in, you know, earlier in 65, whatever, 63, 65. Um, and so I, I just had, even I was 12 years old, I had an optimism about that. But what's frightening now is that we should be so much further along. And what's happened in the last six months, man, is really disheartening because you, you see just the polarization of our, of our country and that, you know, the racism that people need to be aware of, but it's just, you would hope we're further along. The only thing that keeps me optimistic is that the younger group, the younger generation, Gen Z's and some of the younger millennials, like, I don't think they're going to tolerate this. So it's going to be a, a transformation of our culture, but it's also going to be a slower process. Like you can't just snap your fingers and you can't, um, you know, just say, Hey, let's create equality right away. So I'm, I'm talking to all of our players. I've, a lot of them have called me like, just like, wow, what's going on? And then I'm able credibly to talk to them like, yeah, this is what's going on. This is, 
they've been going on for a while, but I also want them to understand that they're in unique positions because of their, their a their earning capability where they can do things directly um, that they um, should understand the responsibility that they have, you know, and the biggest thing for me is like the black family, like you got to be responsible, like to help your children, you know, and to me, I want to be on the forefront of educating them as I've had to educate myself for all these years to how, how you conduct yourself. And that's why it was a big thing when the players wanted to stop playing. I was like, don't let them take your economics away like that. It allows you to go back to your hometown and help, you know, black businesses and education programs and things like that. So, you know, I mean, I'm, it's perplexing and I'm, you know, watching every day, um, every day there's another <laughs> incident it seems like, and it's like, it's really disheartening, but I'm, I'm a prayerful man. So I'm hoping that, you know, the Lord will straighten us out at some point because we're in a really, really toxic time. Yeah. Um, it really is. And it's scary, but I do think, um, like you said, the NBA players have earned this incredible platform that they've created, that they've helped create. Um, and so many of them use their voice and are loud and are inspiring. Um, and I think that it's incredible to see the NBA once again at the forefront of so much discussion and leading the way and so much of the decision-making that it seems like the entire fraternity of sports um, is making together and, and taking a stand right now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on what, the WNBA is going to represent um, in the future. And I'm really excited about the growth of that league and also the platform in which these women have created for themselves and how they're using it. Um, before you go, what is something that you see a trend that's happening in the world of sports and business that, you know, you think will continue or something that you're looking at more than ever? Wow. Well, on the, on the women's basketball side, we work with Sabrina Inescu, who grew up in my hometown here, um, like she's amazing to me and her, how popular she is, how great she is. Um, I, I just see more and more uh, young ladies being inspired by her. And obviously, Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi were attracted to her and what she, how she inspired Gigi. So um, I just, and you know, I watched games with the, the, the women commentators play by play like it's beautiful man like that there's more opportunity for everybody it's 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 people of color and women like we just need to get into a better space where people aren't threatened and they're not territorial and just kind of open it up but you know your earlier question about like the players like it's it's like basketball players and football players but baseball players hockey they're entertainers but you know we're just like a very small you know you know sector of a much, much bigger economy. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done outside of the confines. And there's a lot of really successful African-Americans who I'd like to see their voices empowered because they're successful, but people may not know them. So I'd like to see them stand side by side with the athletes because the athletes are successful because they earn a lot of money, but they're not as necessarily accomplished in business. But we need business you know, relationships. We need education reformation. We need you know, obviously everyone's focusing on voter back, but fair housing. I mean, there's a lot of other things that are institutional that we need to all come together. But I kind of like where it's trending because a lot of these major multinational companies, they're, they're getting the memos and they're looking at their diversity initiatives. And there's just a lot of work to be done, but it's hard to, 
you know, pivot from 400 years of, of the way business is done, the institutional racism and exclusiveness. And, you know, that's part of it is people tend to want to work with people that are like them. So we just need to open things up. And I think there's going to be more initiatives toward that. So I'm going to be optimistic and, and hopefully be a part of those causes. Well, um, I will say that like people can look at the challenge ahead as daunting. And like you said, can think to themselves that this has been happening for 400 years and how do we make a change? But I do think that if we all kind of take this moment now to focus on what we can each do individually in our own communities and our own worlds, that that is ultimately how systematic change gets fixed. And I know that you have always and will always do your part in helping and in inspiring and in leading others to use their voice. And I appreciate um, you lending your voice today to us. I learned a lot. Um, really appreciate you and respect you tremendously. Rich, I appreciate it. Johnny, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, it's great what you do. I follow you regularly, so keep up the great work, and I'm, I'm glad you had me on. Thank you so much. All right, man. Take care. Thanks so much, Bill. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>